This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. It's good to be with you all. Um, some of you uh, got an email from us uh, that we think yesterday we received a power surge that broke some of our equipment uh, and also killed the ACs for a little while uh, and made all the lights flicker. Uh, and so we were wondering if it was going to be back, and it is. And so it's good to be with you all in air conditioning, uh, which is wonderful. Um, we have just finished up a sermon series on Luke. And today we're going to be starting a series in Samuel. Now, our Bibles, we have first and second Samuel, uh, and it appears that when it was written, though, it was intended to be read together, even if they were maybe written on two separate scrolls just because they ran out of space. So first and second Samuel go together, and we're going to be uh, preaching through both, both of these books. Now, Samuel is often described as some of the greatest narrative in the Bible. Uh, it is where we get some of our most famous Old Testament stories concerning David, Saul, Jonathan, but also some of the most devastate, devastating stories of failure. And as we spend the next 30 weeks or so in Samuel, I think you'll see three themes that continue to show up. And actually, these three themes are going to be previewed for us today in this prayer that we get from Hannah. These three themes are God's sovereignty, the importance of listening to God's word, and what the king of God's people will look like. Now, a little bit of context for Samuel. Historically, Samuel comes right after Judges in the Old Testament. Uh, I'll, let me give you just a brief overview here. We've got creation. There was the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. There was the flood. There was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There was slavery in Egypt and Moses, let my people go. There was wandering in the desert. There was entering the land with Joshua. And then there was this time of the Judges. So the tribes were living in the land, and there was this time where they were supposed to be obeying the word of the Lord that they had received from Moses um, on Mount Sinai, and they were supposed to be obeying that word. And when they disobeyed, what God would do is he would send um, oppressors, uh, foreign nations around uh, to um, beat up on them, essentially is what's going on. They do it in various ways. There's, there's different enemies that do it. And so the people would then be reminded that they had um, uh, diverged from God's path, and so they would cry out to the Lord, and they would ask for deliverance, and God would send a judge. And so this cycle would repeat over and over and over again. If you read through the judges, uh, the people sin. They um, are inflicted by a, uh, by a foreign oppressor. They cry out for help, and then God saves them. And they go through this a bunch of times. And all you want in the book of Judges is for the cycle to stop. And the book of Judges ends with this phrase. It says, in this day there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this not having a king was a bad thing. They needed a king to restrain wickedness and sin and divergence, but also to exemplify for them what righteousness looks like. Now, our passage today, as I mentioned, is going to cover, cover these three major themes of Samuel, in some sense, preview them for us, God's sovereignty, the importance of listening to God's word, and what the king will be like. But it's interesting because this preview of Samuel actually comes in the form of a prayer from a woman. Now, we're going to be starting in 1 Samuel chapter 2, but I want to summarize 1 Samuel chapter 1 for us, and then also use this as a plug uh, for these reading plans that 
Kyle made for us, actually. So you can thank Kyle. Um, he said, as we read through Samuel, uh, we, we're not going to preach over every single passage, um, although we would love to. It would take a very, very long time. We don't spend the next five years in Samuel. And so as we skip around, this, though, will help you cover all of those passages. Now, sometimes when we do slow down to look at certain passages for a longer period of time, you'll actually keep up with our sermon series, if that makes sense, in your reading plan. Um, there's five days of reading. Um, so you might reread a passage a number of times to reflect on that a little bit more. And there's some space in there for you to journal any notes or draw a picture. Um, hopefully this is accessible for kids as well. If you wanted to have them color, maybe in here while you were reading to them, might be useful. This is just one way uh, that we at Trinity like to encourage us to get into our Bibles more. Um, we think that the Word of God, as First Samuel, as the books of First and Second Samuel will say, is important to listen to. But again, to summarize chapter one, who is Hannah and where does she come from? We find in chapter one that Hannah is barren. She cannot have any children. And her husband's other wife, now, uh, small pause here real quick. Uh, we're finishing up Judges. Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. The Bible's not endorsing having multiple wives. They're just saying that um, uh, Hannah's husband does have two wives. And so the other wife is making fun of her. And not only that, when she goes um, into the house of the Lord at Shiloh to pray, the priest that is there mocks her because he assumes that she's drunk. You can read all this in 1 Samuel chapter 1. This is a woman who is experiencing the hardness of life. She's being uh, neglected, left alone, made fun of, ridiculed. And in chapter 1, it says that God hears her prayers, that he gives her a gift, and that gift is a son. And after this child is weaned, she listens to the word of the Lord, and she dedicates her son to serve in the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Let me just break this down a little bit for what's happening here. All she wanted was a child, right? To the deepest desire of her heart. She's crying out to the Lord. She was crying out with such passion and emotion in some sense that the priest um, in the house of the Lord at Shiloh thought that she was drunk. And then when she gets the child, she gives it away. When she's given the gift, the thing that she wants most desperately, she seems to squander it. I think we are worried about squandering our gifts. And I think that in Hannah's prayer today, we're gonna to learn from her how to not squander our gifts. Here's how we're worried about squandering our gifts. Um, you guys might know the statistics, like lottery winners tend to throw away all of their money, right? They burn through the cash, uh, they come into some uh, addiction where they spend all their money away. Statistics will show um, that anyone, not just lottery winners, but anyone who comes into a windfall of cash, 70% of them will lose it within three years. Three years. Now, not all of us win the lottery. Many of us have been given financial gifts of some kind, but all of us have received gifts of other kinds. We've been given our intelligence, our social awareness, our health, our physique, our beauty, and our brawn. We've been given opportunities, and we've been given relationships. Children also are gifts given to us. And just like these other gifts, they're gifts that we can squander. Of course, on the most extreme end, we have abuse, neglect, and exploitation. But there's other ranges and forms of squandering our children. There can be enmeshment, where parents' sense of boundaries with their children um, is incorrect, and so the, the children feel that they have to be uh, coaches and encouragers or parents to their parents. They're not free to be children. There's also living vicariously through your children, which might be, you know, another variation on enmeshment there, where there's something in your life that you didn't get to do, some opportunity that you missed out on, and you say, my children will not experience that. 
And so the life that you wanted to live for yourself that you could not fully realize, you then push onto them. And maybe there's some rare exceptions where that's actually the life that they want for themselves. But I think more often than not, these things tend to cultivate resentment in children of their parents for using them instead of loving them for who they really are. It's amazing how much we love our children but for how easy it is for us to stray into the land of squandering the good gift that they are. And none of us want to squander our gifts, right? Whether it's a windfall of cash, whether it's our intellect or whether it's our children, we want to make the fullness of the gifts that we are given. We want to experience the full goodness of what they were to be. How can we do that? Well, today we're going to hear from Hannah how she got to experience the fullness of the gift that she was given. And she's going to do it in ways that we do not expect. We're going to learn from her that we must see that our gifts are given to us and that they are given for the sake of a bigger story. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word, which comes from 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're going to be reading just through verse 10. I know there's 11, through verse 11 in your bulletin. 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This ends the reading of God's word. The grass weathers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're trying to learn from Hannah's prayer. This was, this was a prayer that, that is recorded in scripture for us. Uh, how it was that Hannah was, was able to do something seemingly um, unthinkable for us, to receive the deepest desires of our hearts and then to seemingly squander it away. And what we're going to learn from this is that she recognized two things about gifts. First, that they are given and that they are given for the sake of a bigger story. So first, that they are given. Now, this seems like a given. I've said given a lot, and it's going to start losing meaning real fast, right? But it seems like it's built into the word, right? A gift is something that we receive. And I think that this is something that we understand inherently when we receive a physical gift because someone gives it to us. Uh, But we don't necessarily consider this in the way that we use our language with things that are uh, our talents, maybe like our intellect or even our children. Like we'll call them gifts, but we don't necessarily think about them. And, and, And here's what I mean. Think about them as coming from someone else. We don't often consider the relationship that gave fruit to those gifts. Why it is that the gifts were given in the first place? Because gifts always imply some sort of relationship. 
Maybe a negative example proves most helpful. Uh, when my wife and I were in seminary, we had a number of people that offered uh, to help us in various ways. And one way that was very common was for them to ask us how they could buy us books. Um, so every semester, we'd make an Amazon wish list of the books that we needed. And by uh, their graciousness and, and God's providence, we had most of our books in seminary provided for us by some of these people. But one semester in particular, we received gifts from someone that we did not want to receive gifts from. There had been serious damage in our relationship with no apologies made. And so when we received the gifts, we felt immediately that dissonance with a relationship. We received something that was inappropriate, disproportionate to the relationship that we had. And so we had to return it. We couldn't keep that gift because it represented something about the relationship that just wasn't true, even though it may have represented only $50 or so in books. We couldn't do it. Gift giving and relationships are very closely connected. And in order to not squander our gifts, we must recognize that they are in fact given to us. And the fact that they are a gift establishes a relationship. Hannah starts her prayer with this gift that she's received, right? She's responding to the fact that she's received this son. It's specific, it's personal. She says, my heart exalts and my horn, which is a little weird, but basically it's a reference to animals with horns. And she's saying it's just like a representation of her strength. Uh, she was ridiculed and ashamed and now has, has strength because of the Lord. My horn has been exalted. These were her things because she's been given a gift. She has born a son. She had been under the weight of shame because she had been mocked for her infertility, but the Lord had rescued her. In verse 1, it even speaks of it as if this was a form of salvation. She had been saved from the ridicule she once endured and been brought into this new status. She had received a gift that she could not possibly repay. And just like any of us who have received a gift that we could not possibly repay, she turns and overflows in praise of the one who gave the gift. Verse 2 there is no one holy, none beside, no rock like our God. And notice that she's changed now from my, singing about the blessings that she's received to our God. She's not just speaking to herself, she's singing the praises of the gift giver to others. So what, our gifts were given, how does that help us not squander them? Well, this is, there's two ways I want to explore. First, if we understand that we've received a gift, and that this gift has established a relationship with the gift giver, uh, we will respond like Hannah correctly. We will look at the gifts that we are given, whether it's a windfall of cash, whether it's our intellect um, or our social awareness or even our children, and we will be able to turn towards God and say, thank you for these good gifts. There is no one like you. And here's what this does. This prevents us from trying to find meaning in the gifts themselves that they were never intended to give us. Whether it's a lot of money or whether it's our children, they will never fill all of those spaces in you that was meant to be filled by relationship with the gift giver alone. To recognize that they are actually gifts from God means that you are redirected in thankfulness to him. Your intellect may win you some things, but it will never win you peace with the gift giver. Your brawn or beauty may win you some satisfaction, but will never satisfy you like the one to whom there is no other, according to Hannah. Your children may bring you joy, but there is no greater joy than knowing that the Lord will give you a name greater than you could possibly imagine. 
But there's a second thing that we can learn about these gifts and the, the, the relationship that they establish. Um, because gifts are given inside of a relationship, they're actually regulated in their use a little bit. Again, the negative example, because the relationship was so bad between uh, the gift that we received uh, from, from that person in seminary, we had to return it. We couldn't accept the gift. It didn't align with the relationship. But this changes some uh, in a positive light. Uh, and maybe I can use uh, the example of handmade gifts. You know, my, my grandmother um, hand crocheted blankets for all of her grandkids. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how many she has, but I'm pretty sure it's over 20. Um, so there's a lot of blankets that she's made. And it was a labor of love, um, hours of work, right? Uh, and it says something about our relationship, about her love for me, that she would give me this um, labor of love in this way, this handmade gift of high quality. But if I were to use it to mop up oil in the garage, it would say something profound about my perception of our relationship. In fact, all of us deeply, inherently understand that. We'd be like, no, 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 you can't use that. This, this gift is supposed to be cherished, right? There's something about this relationship that determines the way that it can be used. Your God-given gifts are more than simply uh, thoughtless things that have been handed off to you. They were handmade, and they are of the highest quality. Admitting that he is the gift giver, um, that you've received it and you can never repay it, of course, changes your relationship to him, and so you should praise him, but it also regulates then how you use these gifts. Don't be proud or arrogant, says verse 3, because the Lord knows and the Lord judges. Do not think that, think that your gifts came about by your own power. You may have honed the gift, but the gift itself was more than that. If you use it to benefit only yourself, God will know and judge, verse 3. God has the authority to judge us on how we use our gifts because our gifts exist in this relational bubble. When we use them inappropriately, he has a right to be upset. To be like, that's not what I gave it to you for. Take your intellect. If you use your intellect to create seemingly logical connections to disprove God, you're actually responsible for this and will be judged. Similarly, as if you use your intellect to only serve self, increasing whatever it is that your heart desires, conniving, swindling, and bullying people into getting what you want. But if you use your intellect, intellect I'm really struggling to say that word right. You guys hearing that? Intellect? Intellect to help others see God clearer, to make sense of the world that God created, to see his fingerprints in every area. If you use your intellect to instruct others on good and right actions in the world, God will see that as an act of faithfulness and judge accordingly. Maybe think of it this way. The only way to rightly cherish the goodness of the gift that you're given is to use it the way that God intended. You're not free to use your gifts in any way that you want. God has a plan for them. God wants you to invest them in a particular way. Now, Hannah's case is interesting. Uh, her gift was her son, right? She was given a child. I mean, I don't like think of investing our children into things like giving them. Um, but what was her responsibility in her relationship with God? Well, God's law stipulated that the first male to open the womb was to be dedicated to the temple in order to serve the Lord. In some sense, they were adopted out of their birth families um, and adopted into uh, the temple family. 
So they actually like left their homes and they went to go live in the temple. They were uh, supposed to be donated in that sense uh, to the Lord, to be holy to the Lord. Now there was a way to ransom the children back to their birth families. And for those of you in women's Bible studies studying Exodus, I think you just read through um, the, the section in Exodus where this practice is established. But Hannah chooses not to do this. And instead, she accepts a truth that this gift that was given to her, existing inside of this relationship, was meant for a particular purpose. In order to fully experience the goodness of the gift that was given to her, she had to trust God with how he said this gift was supposed to be used. Are your gifts profoundly shaped by your relationship to the gift giver? such that you actually allow that relationship to regulate how you use all of your gifts? Hannah recognized that her gift was given, saw the nature of the relationship, and actually, uh, in some sense, gave her son back. But versus giving her son away, because that's how the world looked at it, right? They said, why would you squander your gift in such a way? You wanted a child for so long, and you're just going to give it away? Why wouldn't you ransom it back? She can give it away per se, but ask the Lord more, teach me how to use this gift rightly. In some sense, in some sense Hannah was acknowledging, I'm trying to find in my son something that he can never provide for me. Lord, teach me to use this gift appropriately, to not be proud and arrogant. Maybe we could think of how to invest our gifts, whatever they may be, windfalls of cash, our intellect, or our children, as ways to invest in the capital K kingdom, the kingdom that is not of our own making, that is of God's making. Now, the hard part about capital K kingdom investing um, is, of course, it can be done not just with dollars. It can be done with expertise, uh, your law practice, construction, your neighboring, your parenting, PTO meetings, and shareholder meetings. Um, But it requires us uh, to see a bigger picture. And this is what leads us to our second point. In order to invest our gifts into, ca- into the capital K kingdom, we need to see that there's a bigger story. Now, I wonder if Hannah's case strikes you as quite foreign and maybe even offends our sensibilities of what a nuclear family should be. Like, why would God destroy a nuclear family in that way and just like take the firstborn child away? Um, Now, uh, again, if you went back to Exodus to see where the practice is established, I think you'd see some of the reasons that God do that. Uh, But we're in 1 Samuel today. Um, Hannah, barren and ridiculed for so many years, finally gets this child, and then once weaned, gives him away. How could this possibly be good for her? The question we're asking ourselves is, to do capital K kingdom investing, how could it possibly be good for us? Because most of the time, just like Hannah, it feels like squandering. It feels like giving it away. Hannah's child was a gift to her, but Hannah's child was a gift given for the sake of a bigger story. You see, the world assumed that in her giving away her son, she was losing that thing that she most wanted. And yet as we read through the rest of 1 Samuel, we're going to see um, that Samuel becomes preeminent in Israel, not only giving her a great name, but also crowning kings for the nation that had no king. What looked like squandering yielded results she could have never possibly imagined, nor, po- nor could have ever possibly accomplished by holding on to it with all of her might. Only God could multiply that investment in this way. Many times it feels like squandering our gifts, but to be profoundly shaped by a relationship to the gift giver, 
often causes us to lose prestige, lose prominence, lose wealth and opportunities. It feels like squandering our gifts away when we're investing in the capital K kingdom. But just like Hannah, we need to look at the bigger story. Now, I've used this analogy before, uh, and I got it from someone else, so it's not original to me. Uh, but of, oftentimes we can describe God's bigger story like a tapestry. And if you've ever seen a tapestry, if you were to look at the back of a tapestry, there's all just these loose threads, just like hanging things that seemingly have no purpose. And that's probably most of us who are in the midst of life when we feel like we're squandering our gifts. How could this possibly have any purpose? What good does this possibly connect to? But when you turn over the tapestry and you see the completed picture, you can see the bigger story. Now, the hard part about all of this is that God never allows any of us to completely see the bigger story. We read through scripture and we get glimpses, but we never quite see the whole thing. And in fact, what Hannah wanted um, more than anything else um, was a God who would do these things. So in verses 9 and 10, the verbs change uh, from one tense to another, a future tense of sorts. And you can see that in verse 9, there is a God who will guard his people, who will defeat his adversaries. Hannah knew that her God was one of reversed fortunes. So she knew the bigger story enough to know that there would be salvation. You see, God is writing a story that spans from all of creation to recreation. I've gone through the first part of it up till 1 Samuel already. Um, but at the beginning, if you remember, was, there was a fall, right? There was creation, everything was created good, and there was a fall, and something went wrong. It was not good. And God said in that very moment, I will save. And Hannah is almost certainly drawing on these promises. You are a God that will save that will make things right. But Hannah also understands that God's in charge of weaving the tapestry, that God's the author of the story, that God knows where it's going and that he is trustworthy. Look at verses five through eight. In accepting God's plan for her gift, even though she didn't fully understand it, Hannah knew that God is one who feeds the hungry. He makes the barren life-giving, who kills and who brings to life, who raises up the poor and makes them sit with princes. And this is all because, end of verse eight, because the Lord has established the earth on pillars that are his. God is the author of the story. He's knitting together the the tapestry. His capital K kingdom often runs in rules that we don't fully understand. For instance, God can choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, as the New Testament says. And in fact, it seems that God's capital K kingdom prefers quite a bit of kingdom reversals. And this is going to be seen time and time again throughout First and Second Samuel. You're going to see people who should have been great fall to utter ruin. And you're going to be people who should, see people who should have been nobodies and be lifted up to great heights. And even here in Hannah's story, you see somebody who should have been a nobody lifted up. Hannah can give her gift away and know that it's good even when she can't see the end because she knows the bigger story. She knows that the author is trustworthy. Can we learn to see the bigger story like Hannah? If we are, we need to, like Hannah, be well acquainted with what God promises. That means knowing his word, reading more of scripture, knowing what he says and what he promises to do. But it is really hard to see the bigger story, right? Like how often do we see God fulfilling his promises to defend his people and trample his adversaries? Because i got to be honest, more often than not, it feels like his people get trampled and the adversaries prosper, right? If you're just to look around in the world and you'd say, well, what happens to Christians? 
Let's look again at Hannah's whole story because it wasn't easy for Hannah to see God's promises either. Remember, Judges ends with there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, this might sound great to some of us. We're like, no king? Well, us with libertarian senses, no government, woohoo! But it was actually really bad. If you were to read the last stories of Judges, you would read some of the most horrific stories in the whole Bible. There was no king to wield the sword to restrain evil, and there was no king in the land to lead the people in righteousness. And on top of all of this, living in such a wicked place, Hannah was being bullied and made fun of. She was in the middle of a story she didn't understand. She was being asked to face hard realities. She didn't know who Samuel would grow up to be or what would become of her name or her people. So what promise was she clinging to exactly? Because God never promised to make Samuel great. He does in this story. He never promises to resolve every thread in our stories exactly the way that we want to see here and now. Well, she tells us at the end of verse 10, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You see, Hannah didn't know the end of the story. And although she could trust God's promises to be faithful to her people and faithful to everyone in the end, she still wanted to know whether or not there would be justice for her own story. Would there be one who sees, one who judges, one who reigns to make sure that it never happens again? And so she looks forward to a king. Now, She's looking forward to a king because it's already been promised. She already knows the word of the Lord, right? A king, if you were to go back, um, sometimes we think that like, the people wanted the king for their own, um, own reasons. We'll talk about that later as we get into 1 Samuel. Um, but it's actually promised in Deuteronomy and other places before Hannah. So she's looking back to these promises, looking forward to a king. And the books of 1 and 2 Samuel are all about the coming of the king. The king that would finally attribute justice. A king that would finally be given strength by God. A king that would finally make the blessings known here and now. That would reveal the tapestry and show us what it looks like. Hannah desperately wanted to look forward to the king. Now her son Samuel crowns two kings in 1 Samuel. Saul and David. And although David is a man after God's own heart, neither Saul nor David finally realized the end of the story like Hannah might have hoped. So there's Hannah again in the disappointment of failed kings, trusting God in the midst of a bigger story. Can we trust God in the midst of failed kings, stories that don't make sense, gifts that seem squandered, hard things in our lives that seem to have no resolution? And can we trust the author of the story? Now we have the benefit of knowing more of the story. Because there would be another woman who would receive a gift of a son. And she would pray a similar prayer, talking about a king and how God would finally redeem his people and fully realize his kingdom. And if you were to look at our New Testament reading, you would see it there, and it comes from Luke chapter 1, and it is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And if you were to compare Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 and Mary's prayer in Luke chapter 1, you would see a lot of similarities. Both are desperately waiting for a king. Both saw themselves within a greater story. Both were able to take these gifts and give them away in ways that don't even make sense to us. Hannah could hope that Samuel would be part of crowning a king who would come, and Samuel would be, just not the ultimate king. But Mary would be the one that would actually see him with a crown. 
But as God's capital K kingdom would have it, Jesus' reign on this earth was not like any of us would have expected. It wasn't like Saul's, King Saul's, and it certainly wasn't like King David's. He was crowned with a crown of thorns. He wasn't exalted to a throne, but was lifted up on a cross. He didn't defeat his adversaries, but was seemingly defeated by them, crucified at the hands of an occupying force in his nation. There's a children's book that describes Jesus as the greatest gift. I'm going to continue with that idea a little bit further. Jesus saw himself as the greatest gift ever given, but a gift given for the sins of many, to redeem a people for himself. Jesus saw himself within a bigger story, which had allowed him to walk towards death. And as he was walking towards death, everyone around him would say, you're squandering the good gifts that you're given. You're going to harm not only yourself, but all of us who followed you. But because Jesus could say, not my will, but yours be done, Jesus would finally be the king. The king that makes all things new. The king that weaves together the tapestry. That makes sense of all of the loose ends. That reveals to us the bits and pieces and how they're connected Jesus could be the king that would trample over our most ancient enemy. He would defeat death in the most unlikely manner, in the capital K kingdom investing sort of way where he goes into death and then defeats death by dying himself. Because when he was resurrected, he would be the only king in all of human history who lived and defeated death, went into death and came back. And he says, I'm not even subject to death. I am the greatest king there ever was, and I am the greatest gift to you. I can even command death to spit people back out of its mouth. I can command death to spit out Hannah. I can command death to spit out Mary, and I can command death to spit out you and me. This Jesus, this king, is the greatest gift to us. And because he is the greatest gift to us, all of our secondary gifts, windfalls of cash, our intellect and power, our children. Because we have the greatest gift, we can now see all of these things in correct light. As important and gifts to be cherished but not ultimate. Maybe just like my blanket, right, is just a symbol of the love that I have for my grandmother. The relationship that I have is most important. Because Jesus is Lord over our death, we can live our lives, not with reckless abandon, but with purpose. We can invest in ways that seem like squandering. We can give our children away into things that don't make sense to the world. Because Jesus is Lord over our intellect, man, I really cannot say that word today. I'm so sorry. I'm like trying to come to a conclusion. I just can't get over intellect. We can pursue investigating his creation in order to know him better. Because Jesus is king, we need not depend upon our children to supply some emotional need that we have because Jesus can supply it. Because Jesus is king, we can, by the world's standards, squander our gifts only to find that they will be multiplied and invested beyond our wildest dreams because the one who is writing the story knows how they are to be cherished, knows how to get the most out of them, knows what their ultimate purpose is, and knows what the best goodness is about it. When we receive these gifts from the Lord and we want to experience the fullness of goodness, we have to realize that they were given and that they're given for the sake of a bigger story. 
and that we have an important part to play in our investment, but that God will multiply it way more than we could have possibly ever thought. Again, I think I said last week in a different sort of application, but Jesus cares for your children way more than you could. Give them to him. I mean, don't, don't dedicate him to this church. Um, we're not going to hire your children. Um, but understand that his plan for their lives is what is best for them. Understand that you can't require of things of them that they were never designed to give you. That only your relationship with Jesus was designed to give you. Understand that windfalls of cash can never give you what you thought might solve all of your problems. Only Jesus can do that. Figure out ways to get, take these good gifts that you've given and reinvest them back into his kingdom. Because Jesus is the greatest gift, we don't have to squander our gifts by trying to extract from them what only he can provide. We don't squander our gifts as Christians because we've already received the best gift there ever is. Now, Jesus, as the best gift that there ever was, not only gave his words to his disciples, but he also gave them tangible signs and seals of understanding um, how good this gift is. Now, I've mentioned this before, but this is just like a little sampling, right? Um, in some ways, it kind of feels like squandering. <laughs> um, you know, we've all had better meals. Uh, and this is just a little bit of bread and, and a little thimble of wine or grape juice. What seems like squandering, though, is actually a participation in a different reality. In a capital K kingdom, not because we're um, getting anything here, we're actually being given a great gift of tasting a relationship with Jesus upon our lips. This sacrament was instituted by Christ the night that he was betrayed, and he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it. And he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I, ministering in his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you, broken and given for you. Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of the sins of many. This is my blood given for you. Take and drink. If you believe that Jesus is the greatest gift and that the only way to enjoy the true gift that you have been given is to utilize them in service of his capital K kingdom, if you've been united to him by baptism, then this table is for you to come and taste and see this little bit of reality. If you're not sure that that's true, if you're not sure that Jesus is the greatest gift that was ever given, I'd... Um, ask you to refrain from this portion of our service. Uh, there is a prayer in our bulletin if you'd like to look to that, or if you'd like to reflect on the prayer of Hannah that we looked at today and how she saw the coming king a thousand years before he would come and said, my hope is in him. Just like we, 2,000 years after he came, look at the king that came and say, my hope is in him. In a moment, I will pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, and we'll go to these two serving stations on my right and my left. Uh, there's gluten-free uh, bread available. If uh, you require that, please just notify your, your server. Uh, and then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. King Jesus, you saved us. You saved us from ourselves, and you saved us from our sins, and you will save us from our age-old enemy of death because we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. As we partake of this bread and this wine, may we, by the power of your Spirit, be assured of the greatness of your kingdom.
May we be emboldened to invest in it more deeply. May we have your eyes to see the grand reversals of this world, to follow you as you lead us into apparent squandering, only to find that you provide for us abundantly. May we taste this provision this morning in this bread and wine. And we ask this in your name and by the power of your spirit. Amen.